Is there anything you would like to do? Any place you would like to see? Or anyone you'd like to meet before you die? We have come to refer to such desires as a bucket list in the days in which we live. Thinking about things we would like to do before we kick the bucket, so to speak. I don't really have a bucket list of my own, but there is one event that I would like to witness which would actually prevent me from dying physically. Of course, you know I'm talking about the rapture of the church. I want to partake of Christ's second advent as he comes to take his church home to be with him in heaven before he judges the world, and I hope that all devout Christians have that same hope. But as much as we are looking forward to the coming of Christ in glory in our age, there were devout Jews who were looking for the coming of Messiah the first time. And their hope was in that advent. Our hope is in the second advent. And in our study of narratives concerning Christ's birth, we have observed a number of these devout Jews who were worshipers of Jehovah. We've talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary, uh, each of whom received angelic announcements of great things. And this morning we meet another couple who have the distinct privilege of being among the first to see Jesus for who he really was, the consolation of Israel and the whole world. This couple was not married, but I surmise they may have known each other because they often visited the temple. As a matter of fact, one visited every day. And each of them had one item on their bucket list, and that was their longing to see the redemption of Israel. But that redemption was not so much an event in their minds as it was in a person. They were looking for the coming of Messiah, the one who would rescue Israel from her enemies, the one who would provide full and final forgiveness for sin, the one who would be the eternal king. And as a matter of fact, the Lord had promised one of these people that they would not die until they witnessed the birth of Messiah. So the Lord chose Simeon and Anna to be among the cameo actors who would forever testify of Jesus in holy writ. They are among the faithful Jews who still worship Jehovah in truth and hope for the promised one to soon arrive. And they're examples to us today of our own steadfast hope that God always keeps his word and uses faithful servants to testify of his son. So let's ask God's blessing as we look into the lives of these two people. Our Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today for your word, for its instruction to us. We're thankful, Lord, for the reminders today of Christ's first advent, which makes our meeting possible today. And as we look into the lives of two other characters that were involved in that event, may we follow their examples of uh, uh, looking forward not to your first coming, but your second coming, and Lord, proclaiming your name until that event takes place or you take us home. Bless us as we look into your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the, in the cameo appearances of Simeon and Anna, there are three movements. First of all, we see Simeon giving a benediction 
that reveals the babe as God's salvation for all people. And then Simeon gives a prediction that not everyone will receive the salvation that the Christ child provides. And finally, Anna is a person who speaks no words in our narrative, but she does proclaim who Jesus is to everyone who will listen. So let's take a look at these three uh, thoughts today. First of all, as we look at verse uh, 25 to 32, the sight of Jesus inspires Simeon's benediction and prediction. And again, we're reminded in verses 22 to 24 as to why Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were there in the temple. We touched on this last time, but let's be reminded of why they came there. It says, now when the days of our purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to pre- present him to the Lord. This was according to Old Testament law. So the first reason they came was the cleansing necessary for the mother, the one who had given birth. It was a shorter period of time for a male child. And by this time, Jesus was very close to six weeks old. And they brought him now to be presented to the Lord as their firstborn son. Usually that required giving a, an offering to the temple. But in this situation, the firstborn child was actually the son of God. So there's a great difference there. And then thirdly, they came to dedicate this child, their son, to the Lord's service And many years later, the Lord Jesus would proclaim that the Son of Man is come not to be ministered to, but to be ministered, uh, 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 but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So he came to serve, and he was the servant of old prophesied, uh, and he would come uh, to meet all of our needs in his crucifixion and resurrection. So this particular event meant all the holy requirements of the law if you were a proper worshiper of Jehovah, if you really wanted to do what he wanted you to do. And we're reminded of this in verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. So uh, Joseph and Mary show their devotion to the Lord in this act their desire to raise up this child the way that God wants them to. And um, Jesus later said, if you love me, obey my commandments. So the way to show you love God, you love the Lord Jesus Christ, is to obey his commandments. And as they did this, uh, they were showing their love, their devotion for the Lord in obedience uh, to the old moral code. Now, the next scene then introduces us to our character Simeon, who was present at the temple that day. And we don't really know a lot about Simeon. There's no other mention of him in the word of God except for in this passage. So again, he is another cameo character, but it does give us some information about him. Uh, He had a very common name in that time, Simeon, yet that was the name of one of Joseph or Jacob's 12 sons, 
who fathered the, the tribe Simeon, and Simeon actually became incorporated in the tribe of Judah. So very close to the tribe from which the prince would come, from which the Messiah would come. And there are a number of interesting qualities that are mentioned here about this man, Simeon. So let's look to verse 25 here. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout. You remember that Joseph was a just man. You remember that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. They were devout Jews. They were following the, the law of God in regard to how to properly worship and live for God. And uh, so we see the same qualities here in this person. Righteousness in the word of God indicates right standing with God, not that you can achieve on your own, but that he achieves for you. And uh, it's derived only from faith in God's salvation, and it's displayed in your life by your attitude toward the Lord and how you treat other people. So this is a man who was living for God in his generation. The word devout means uh, pious or piety. And a person who's concerned about God's lordship in their life. This was a word that was used in classical Greek of a person who was a statesman. And so it may infer that Simeon was a respected elder among the people, known for his devotion to the Lord. So he had a testimony to others as well. He was also doing something very important, as we see in verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Well, this reflects a devout Jew's hope that the Lord would soon come and change the fortunes of his people. That meant they believed that the Lord would come and remove the Roman authority and reestablish Israel as a primary country in the world. But more importantly, for those who understood the most about the Old Testament prophecies, it meant a prince of peace. It meant someone who's going to come and deal with sin. And this is who he's looking for. So this points to the end of Israel's alienation from God, their suffering through the coming of their Messiah. And it's a theme we find in the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah. So let's go back there just for a few minutes and take a look at some of these in relationship to the idea of comfort or consolation. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 40, you'll see this in the first two verses. The prophet proclaims, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So the idea of the end of sin, the end of punishment for sin is in that uh, idea of consolation. Then if you turn over to chapter 49 and take a look at verse 13. Sing, O heaven, be joyful, O earth, and bring out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Then over in chapter 51 and verse 3. (coughs) 
For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So we're projecting even beyond the first advent to aspects of the second advent and that thought of consolation or comfort. And then finally, if you'll turn over to chapter 61, this is something that Jesus quotes and says relates to himself later on in the book of Luke. In chapter 61, verse 1, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That is what Anna and Simeon were looking forward to in the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And so it's a very important thought here. But also, as we go on here, we see that the Holy Spirit was upon this man. And that also is related to the consolation because it's suggestive of the age of the Spirit in which we now live. Uh, That indicates that Simeon was among those who uh, the Lord gave the Spirit before Christian times. And you remember that uh, the Spirit of God is called the Comforter. Jesus promised a Comforter will come who will be similar to me of the same kind as I am. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit, the Consoler, the Comforter. So that's also uh, uh, in the idea here of looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon this man, which indicates that Simeon, as one of the few people in Old Testament times that the Lord gave the Holy Spirit uh, in order for them to do something great or to be involved in some kind of task for the Lord. And the verb tense may indicate that the Spirit actually indwelt this man as a precursor of the great things that would come in the age of the Spirit, the church age. Now, As we've read through these stories, have you noticed the emphasis that Luke places upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit at Christ's advent? Now, back in Matthew, uh, the, the Spirit is mentioned in the Annunciation of Joseph two times in relation to the conception of the Lord Jesus. But we come to Luke Uh, Luke alludes to the Spirit filling John the Baptist even before he's born, the filling of Zechariah, the filling of Elizabeth, uh, his instrumentation of the Spirit's instrumentation in the conception of Jesus, and now in this passage three times in regard to Simeon. And it's all predictive of that New Testament function of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. Now, through the Spirit, 
a special revelation is given to this man. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. So this man is, uh, he's, he's got, I guess, the best thing you can have on your bucket list. He's going to see the Lord Jesus, see their Messiah before he passes away. So can you imagine what this man, as he comes to the temple, is thinking each day he comes there? Is this the day I'll see Messiah? Is this the day I'll recognize him? So this is the anticipation and the hope that this man had. And and you can imagine uh, how that hope was perhaps building up as time passed by. Now, in our story, verse 27, excuse me. So he came by the spirit into the temple. Now, Simeon may not have gone to the temple every day, but this particular day, it says the spirit guided him to the temple. He's in the spirit. The spirit's showing him the way. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he takes him up in his arms and he blessed him. All right. So we don't know how old Simeon was. We don't know how many days or even years he had been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. Most believe that he was probably an elderly man. And verse 29 sort of suggest this when he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Uh, The idea there is, well, uh, as he gazes upon the Messiah, he's connecting the prophecy that's been given to him, the promise that God gave him, and the verb to, uh, to let here means to dismiss or to release. And then he mentions the idea of departing in peace. So it seems like he's, he's submitting himself now to the time God calls him home to heaven. And usually that's later in life. So Simeon recognizes that his vigil has ended and he's ready to be with the Lord if that's the Lord's will. Now, in that moment of great joy, as he picks up the Lord Jesus as a little six-week-old baby, What does Simeon see? I know what you and I see. We see a cute little child, and we ooh and we ah, and we we just adore that little pretty much newborn baby. But when he looks at the child, what does he see? He doesn't see so much a little baby, but he sees the means of God's salvation coming into the world. And what he says we once again have an expansion of God's purposes beyond just the nation of Israel, but God's salvation extending to all people, not just the Jews. Look at what he says. He says, You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So he connects this person with the ultimate salvation of humanity. 
which you have prepared for the faith before the face of all people, not just the Jew. The normal conception of the coming of Messiah in the eyes of the, the religious leaders of that day and many of the people wasn't that it was coming for the Gentiles because they are all going to get judged and they're all going to uh, pay for all their sins and how they've treated Israel. But he sees beyond that. He sees that the Messiah is for all people, not just the Jews. And so in verse 32, he mentions a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And the Jewish leaders would not have liked to hear that in their day. But he proclaims truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in his eyes, is a fulfillment of all those Old Testament passages, especially in Isaiah, where it calls about this one, uh, talks about this one coming to be a light of, to the world, a, a light in a dark place, a dark and evil place. And the person of Christ is the fulfillment of all those uh, messianic passages. He's going to be a light of salvation to all who believe on him, no matter what their ethnic background is. And again, let me read to you what Isaiah says in uh, the 60th chapter. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings uh, to the brightness of your rising. So he's speaking to Israel, the nation. The Lord's going to be their glory, but he's also going to be the light that will bring the Gentiles uh, into the kingdom of God. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, Messiah will definitely be the glory of Israel. He will be the one who will redeem her from her sins and put her on high once again. But the glory they were looking for was a political one. Eventually that will happen in the future. But the spiritual glory of Israel is what is being uh, thought here, that they will experience the full salvation that will come in their Messiah, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, 25 says, In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified or made right with him and shall glory. So the idea of glory and light is coming out here in this benediction upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Mary and Joseph hear this, this strange man that they've never seen before comes up, uh, takes their child and makes this prophecy. And really at this point, it's a lot to take in. All these things that have been happening to them. So this leads us then to a prediction that we might not expect at Messiah's birth as Simeon goes on uh, to proclaim something to Mary in verses 33 to 35. Okay, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which are spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, now this is a, a prediction, this is a prophecy, and through the Spirit, uh, Simeon again is, is speaking these things. Um, 
and he prophesies about the future of this child. It's not going to be all glorious and glamorous. His life's not going to be a bed of roses. And he's also going to be known as the man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief. So Simeon addresses these words, uh, and he's saying these things to Mary, of course, the mother of the Lord Jesus. Behold, in other words, pay attention to this. This child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So what does that mean? Well, he's going to be the source of falling and rising within Israel, and of course, the people of Israel. And it's a little bit ambiguous, and it can be taken in a couple of ways. First of all, this is kind of talking about the human response of people to the ministry and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not all going to be positive, as strange as that might see, uh, seem to us. Imagine living in that day and um, beholding the Lord Jesus Christ, hearing what he preached, seeing the miracles he performed, seeing the way that he lived, the type of person he was, and yet you just don't take it in. And this is what was going on. All right, so um, this man, Simeon, he sees Jesus for who he is. He is God's salvation. He is the means by which uh, uh, we can be forgiven of our sins. But some will not see him as that. Some are going to fall, and some are going to rise. And the idea here, I think, is some will not see him for who he is, Many will actually reject him, but that rejection carries the strictest penalty. Uh, And that penalty, of course, is death, spiritually speaking. He's destined for the fall and rise of many, and many are going to fall away to perdition because they would not believe who he was. And conversely, there will be those who are raised up to salvation because they do understand who he was. They do put their faith and their trust in him. So in that sense, there is a falling because of rejection. There's a rising because of belief. But also, it may suggest to us that in order for a person to rise uh, to salvation, there must be a falling away a falling away from our pride, from our rebellion, from our sinfulness. And this would coincide with the preaching of John the Baptist in years to come as he preaches a, a, um, a gospel of repentance, so to speak, or, or turning away from sin and a baptism of repentance, preparing people for the coming of Messiah who can provide the forgiveness of sin. So faith in Christ involves humility and repentance as he raises us up to salvation. In Isaiah 57, 15, you remember that prophecy of of Isaiah? For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite heart and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. 
So that's an agreement with this whole concept of faith. On one side, you have repentance, turning to away from your sin. On the other side, turning to Christ as your Savior. So a falling away on one uh, uh, side and a rising up to receive Christ on the other. Jesus also is going to be a figure that will be opposed. Look at what it says in the rest of verse 34. For a sign which will be spoken against. To be spoken against means to contradict or to be opposed to. As the true nature of hearts are revealed, verse 35, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. As that develops in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, many are going to show opposition to him, especially the hierarchy of religious leaders. And the word thoughts there in verse 35 alludes to reasoning in the context in a negative sense. In other words, not thinking right about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And many of the Jews will reject Jesus as the Messiah rather than accept him. We've already seen that in the life of King Herod, who instead of wanting to find out who this is, wants to wipe out a whole village of uh, young Jewish boys. And this kind of rejection is going to continue within the Jewish religious hierarchy, among the fickle crowd who followed Jesus, but then called out for his blood at the crucifixion. And the theme is going to continue uh, through the book of Acts as the gospel is preached among the Gentiles. You see some Jews coming to him, but a lot of them rejecting him. And then, of course, Gentiles coming in and and, uh, trusting Christ as well. And he says that this rejection is going to be like a sword that will pierce through your own soul, meaning Mary's soul as well, as it would any mother whose child is rejected by society. Uh, We can empathize with that today. But this would especially be so at the cross of Calvary, where Jesus is being executed for sins he did not commit, Uh, executed like a common criminal, the lowest of the low deaths, and she witnesses that. So as she goes through her life, and uh, many people toward the end of his ministry begin to speak negatively of Christ and fall away from following him, and then he dies in this unexpected way, that will be something that will give her great grief in her soul. Um, But Simeon declares that uh, the great blessing of salvation that comes to the world through this child is true. Many will be saved, but also he sets forth the pain of persecution and opposition as people make a personal decision concerning the Messiahship of Jesus. And that truth holds true in every generation. People make a decision, whether it's conscious or not, if they will believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us up to our final character. And we see that the presentation of Jesus evokes proclamation from Anna in verses 36 to 38. And again, we don't know much about her other than what we have here 
and these few verses. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Her name is the Greek translation of Hannah. So it's the same Old Testament name as uh, uh, the mother of Samuel. And that name means grace. And that connects her with a great Old Testament saint. She's also a prophetess, one to whom the Lord spoke directly from time to time. And there are only four other women in the Old Testament times that are named as prophetesses. Now, Anna is one of few by this time in Israel's history that could identify her tribe, the tribe of Asher. Asher was uh, toward the north, again, closer to the Gentile nations. But this connects her with the true Israel as a member uh, of one of the tribes of Israel and a faithful worshiper, we see, by how she's characterized here. Now, the next phrase says she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, that would seem to indicate that he died an untimely death, that she was only married seven years, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. So what does that mean? Well, does that mean that she was 84 years old at this time, or that she'd lived as a widow for 84 years? We're not absolutely sure. It's not real clear if the latter's true, she would have been over 100. She would have been around 105. But either way, she was an extremely old woman for the times in which she lived. And most importantly, we find here that Anna was devoted to the Lord And verse 7. Who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So that indicates to us that possibly she could have, as, a, as a, a widow, had a residence in one of the outer rooms of the temple and actually lived there. Or she was very close to the precincts so that she could come into the, uh, the woman's uh, area of the temple and pray every single day and sometimes even uh, in the night. So she was a very devout worshiper of Jehovah. And the idea of fasting carries more than the thought of not eating for lengthy periods of time, but also the idea of grief and mourning uh, concerning present conditions, a sense of things not being right with God, the way that they ought to be. So, this may have been a kind of a, a humble protest against all the atrocities that were going on in Israel, uh, in the priesthood, in the temple, and in the nation of that day. And she's praying about these things and again desiring for the Lord to straighten things out, which would imply the coming of Messiah. So combined with her constant praying and her fasting, we are again introduced to someone who is very devout and very close to the Lord. Now, what happens? Well, in verse 38, and coming in that instant, in other words, coming at exactly the right time like Simeon did, and we have to say the Lord somehow led her to that, his providence brought her to this place, <clears throat> coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. 
She recognizes who this is. Uh, she has the same attitude that Simeon does here. And again, it's likely the spirit that, uh, that led her to find Jesus in that day when there might have been hundreds of people coming to the temple for different purposes. So uh, what does she do? Well, when she recognizes who Jesus is, she thanks the Lord, she praises the Lord, uh, but she also speaks about the Lord. We don't have any of her words, but it says here, she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. The idea of redemption is the same as consolation. She's looking for the consolation of Israel. And so when she sees the Messiah, recognizes him, she proclaims that to anybody who will listen to her as they come into the temple area. Maybe saying, I've seen uh, the Christ child. He's with us now. Uh, he, he was over there. And she might describe the circumstances. And now she becomes another testimony, another witness that the Messiah indeed has come. Now, none of these cameo characters were people of renown. They were pretty much nobodies as far as society was concerned. They were poor people. They were unknown. They were unimportant on the world scene. But every one of them was chosen by the Lord to participate in his program of redemption. Even from the elderly Simeon and Anna, we can draw some spiritual applications. First of all, Simeon unveils the work of Christ in providing our salvation. To see the Lord Jesus is to see God's salvation. That's what he understood. He saw Jesus even as a baby in his true identity. He is God's salvation. He's the light of the world. He's the glory of Israel. And those who see their sinfulness and fall before him in humility receive him as Savior, and they'll be raised up to new life. In Anna, uh, we see an example of proclaiming Christ to those who may not recognize him. And one of the most difficult things for many Christians is to boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus, especially when uh, you think you might get some negative response. Once Anna saw the Savior, she could not help but testify to people who came into the temple area. Anybody who would listen, she would tell them what she had witnessed, what she had seen, who the Messiah is. So are we willing in our age, in our day, to be like uh, Anna, to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, to share the truth about who he is? And then we find here also that those who come to Christ, those who serve him, are going to suffer in some ways as he did. People today still reject the light they reject Jesus, and they may well persecute those who believe in him and who stand for his righteousness. And sometimes, no matter how hard we try to witness to somebody, to uh, bring them to Christ, to enlighten them to spiritual things, a lot more people won't believe than will believe. It's a sad truth. 
And then no matter how hard we try to do right and live for the Lord, there's going to be people who hate us for it. And that's coming, uh, that's becoming more and more prevalent as we see these things going on in our own nation today. The good guys are the bad guys because they won't accept what the bad guys do. So we're bad because we don't agree with a lot of things going on in our world today. So we should be prepared, as Mary was, for the heart-piercing that's associated with the true faith. And then finally, thinking about the age of this couple, uh, for the Christian, uh, retirement is something that shouldn't happen. Now, we might uh, retire from our profession, our earthly calling or work. Uh, That's fine. But we don't ever retire from serving the Lord Jesus. Simeon and Anna are both examples of that truth. Simeon was waiting for the Lord, looking for Christ uh, all his life. We don't know how many more years he lived after this happened. Anna, we know, was at least 84. She might have been over 100. And yet she still is devoted to the Lord. She's still telling people about him. She doesn't re- uh, retire from her serving the Lord and living for the Lord. So how are we going to use our gifts and our uh, time to serve God in the coming year? Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word today. Again, we're thankful for this time of year that reminds us of your first advent. And as Simeon and Anna were looking... uh, they were, they were looking with great anticipation to that first advent. Help us to be looking to your second advent in the same way. And Lord, while we do so, help us, Lord, to be devoted to you as they were and sharing your word with others as they were. Help us, Lord, to be powerful witnesses of Christ today in our generation until you come or you take us home. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.